Hey, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to Season 12 of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. So great to be back with you once again this week. This is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. Keeping in the tradition of this show, uh, the first episode of every season, we like to have a little bit more specialized episode. In the early days of our podcast, these were a little bit more like editorials. In fact, I think our Mm -hmm. first history of video game music and possibly even evolution of the NES had a lot of scripted elements. Yeah, we we possibly went too far in that direction (laughs) for that first episode. But after that, we kind of found a happy balance of really exploring video game music from a different perspective. Yeah, putting a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more thought and research into it, uh, you know, which differentiates it from normal episodes. So we're going to continue that today. The name of today's episode is Living Legends. In the idea of this episode, because like we said, we like to recontextualize not just new music, but some of our favorite video game music and find a different way to catalog it and look at it that might help us better understand it. Right. For today, we're going to be focusing on music from composers that have really been around since the 80s and 90s. You could really describe them as living legends in the video game music industry. And these are all composers who, for the most part, are are actively working to this day. So what we're going to do for every composer we're looking at, we're going to take a listen to an early example of theirs and a more recent example. Talk about what elements of their style, their salient features uh, are retained Mm -hmm. through that gap of in some cases decades and we'll talk about how they may have changed or how the technology might have benefited them and allowed them to explore areas that we may not have heard you know 10 or 20 years ago well that description is exciting me to start recording this episode it sounds too. like a great topic okay so let's hit record we're okay. recording oh right? crap we lost everything we just said uh and what a fitting track to play in really kind of feels like a classic for the podcast and that yeah. brings us to the first composer that we should mention that is on today's topic uh we're actually going to be playing in and out with his with his tracks today so what you heard playing in was from motoi sakuraba a classic video game composer that was a mega drive title zan yasha and bukiyoko and that was track four and we will be playing out with a more recent sakuraba track what a what a legendary composer uh and one thing we should mention today is there's there's a lot of living legends we're fortunate enough for video games so we had to cut a lot of big names Mm -hmm. this is just a sampling of some of the people that that have been around for a long time and are still active well and carl i think it's safe to say that today's episode is i guess less about these composers as individuals Mm -hmm. and more it's just reflective of how new this medium is sure in the fact that the real movers and shakers of video game music that were around in the early days and helped to kind of form what it is they're still like in their late 40s right now yeah a lot of them are in their 50s or 40s and they're still working professionals so i I think that's kind of what we wanted to highlight because you know that's not always going to be the case yeah when you look at the vast majority of of classic game composers most of them continued in the industry that maybe they moved on to supervisor roles or or sound design yeah a lot of them have their own companies or, or maybe even left the industry so it is a little on the rare side that you have people like this today all right let's start things off today with one of the heaviest hitters. This is Nobuo Uematsu. What we're going to do is we're going to play a track, a very early track of his, and then we're going to go right into an incredibly recent composition. Now, not only is he active, he's still composing for video games. That is something that has to be... um, 
celebrated. Uh, yeah, and that's definitely one of the things that's true with all the composers and today. And within the series that he became known for. So let us start things off with a track from Final Fantasy II for the NES. This is Town. Let's take a listen. guys are listening to the town theme from Final Fantasy 2 for the NES composed by Nobuo Uematsu, who is the first person we're really going to talk about today and try to see if we can discuss his career, where he started, uh, where he's at right now. It's pretty awesome that someone who was this pioneering in the early days of video game music not only is still active, but is composing. I know that that is a distinction to make. He's still writing music that is being heard in video games to this day. Yeah, definitely one of the original godfathers. And what's so cool, and we talk about this a lot, but in the industry of video games is for a long time, it was kind of a young person's club in terms of the designers and composers. I mean, both Uematsu, Koji Kondo, Yuso Kashiro, I mean, some of the biggest names all got started either right out of college or in the case of some of these people, uh, when they were still in adolescence, secondary school or, or high yeah, school. Yeah, we have examples know? of that later, too. So it, it's, it's really... So it's really inspiring to see, in a case like this, such a young man really stepping up to the plate and creating some incredible art with this opportunity he was given. What I really love about so much of the NES days in terms of the Final Fantasy series is, again, those primitive synths are able to blur the lines between all of the genres that are creating influence. There is Mm -hmm. a lot of classical music influence in some of the ornamentations, some of the accompanimental patterns that sound like classical piano music, yet some of the chord progressions and some of the melodic tendencies also tend to borrow from film music and pop music. You know, you can tell just all the things that uh, a young Uematsu would have been exposed to at the time. And one thing I want to do for as much of these tracks as we can if there's information, it's interesting to note the years uh, that these composers uh, were, were working on this stuff. Uematsu was composing this when he was 29 years old, mm. Final Fantasy II. And now let's move on to one of the more recent soundtracks that Uematsu worked on. This is the iOS game Grand Blue Fantasy. And in some ways, this does feel like a spiritual successor to the Final Fantasy this series. Is a fantastic it, soundtrack. It's an amazing soundtrack. This project reunited uh, two Final Fantasy veterans, Uematsu, and I believe one of the art directors. Oh, sure. It, so they've worked on many of the, the games together. So this is an amazing soundtrack. Some of it features orchestral instruments. Uh, some of it's more smaller ensemble. And there's some sequence stuff as well. Let's just take a listen to how far Uematsu has come, how far we've come is an industry. This is Sleeping Place of the Great Wing, composed by Nobuo Uematsu.
I'm so glad we're playing this particular example in the context of what we just heard. Right. Because doesn't it feel like there's this incredible linkage Absolutely. to his early work? There's this sense of earnestness, very simple positive, humble Very pastoral music. Piece. Pastoral. It, it really reminds me of his early work in the Final Fantasy mm-hmm. series. This is Sleeping Place of the Great Wing from Grand Blue Fantasy, which is a wonderful soundtrack. And Uematsu composed this when he was about 54 years old. He's currently 58 years old, so mm. pretty recent. Well, you know, and I have to say, speaking of the thread or the through line from the Final Fantasy series to this, which in many ways is like a spiritual successor, Uh, I feel like so much of the orchestration or instrumentation decisions really got figured out, got squared away away during the Super Famicom days Mm -hmm. because that was really the first time when the sounds, crude as they may have been, were able to actually approximate some semblance of real instruments. And so I do feel like in this example in particular, you know, you have harp, you have a flute instrument, you have that what sounds like a melodic or accordion you even have like mandolin at some time and then you do have other orchestral elements like strings and things like that mm-hmm. I think that and it, I think that um, and even though this isn't necessarily as eclectic as uh, some of the music in the Final Fantasy it's more series, eclectic than a lot of media this would be yeah the the, that general variety and all those different flavors of instruments is something that definitely feels distinct to that series and mm-hmm. specific to this composer. And I think that's an aspect, in addition to the compositional aspects that you were touching on, Carl, I mean, the fact that it's so pastoral, the sweetness of the chord progression, even that harp accompanimental pattern it just, reminds I me mean, of one of those square yeah, channels. At the end of the day, it's just classic RPG video game music. And it's so wonderful that now we get to hear it with real performers and the fidelity right. is so great it's a little bit weird that this was an ios game but again that is another sign of where we are in the industry where even these ios soundtracks some of them are better than the console stuff like mm-hmm. we recently had that spotlight on that brave exvius it's an right. io a mobile game that has some of the best music the series seen in years i think so that's it's, true it's, it's just wonderful stuff all right well it's now time to move on to the next composer we're going to talk about today and we do have to kind of speed through and another disclaimer is there's again there's so many wonderful talented composers that could have been on this list. Maybe we'll do a part two if we feel I lazy. I think many wouldn't argue, though, that these are some of the biggest names in the video yeah, game industry. these definitely are some of the biggest. All right, let's move on to the legendary Yuzo Koshiro. We got to talk about him. We got to talk about Yuzo. He was uh, probably the one of the first people that came to my mind when I think about living legends. Because he's sure. someone who got his start so incredibly young. When he was I a teenager. Right, yeah, he was 18, 17, 18 years, years old, old. Yeah. when he created the first Ease soundtrack. So incredibly young, so pivotal for the industry, mm-hmm. where it would go. What I love about these examples that we're playing and why this is such a perfect person to talk about today is because Yuzo Koshiro is kind of having this renaissance where people are really yearning for classic Kashiro-esque ease-sounding music, many times with PC-88 implementation. So the difference between this track that we're going to start with from 18-year-old Yuzo Koshiro to (laughs) a track from a couple years ago, it's actually going to sound very similar, and I think that's really beautiful. Let's start things off with a track from Ease 2, which came out for the PC-88, the MSX, as well as a bunch of other systems. This is a teenage Yuzo Koshiro here. You kind of hear a raw talent in his composition. You don't hear a lot of polish, necessarily, or craft, Mm -hmm. but you just hear a lot of excitement and energy. This is Ice Ridge of Noltia. Let's check it out.
so classic. You guys are listening to Ice Ridge of Noltia from Ease 2 for the PC-88, composed by the one and only Yuzo Kashiro. And this particular track, uh, you know, we could say a lot about the Ease sound in general, but it's almost more uh, (laughs) embodied in this track than anything else. You have that rhythm on the bass, you have the chord progression, you have Mm -hmm. the the sense of, like, shuffle, that kind of galloping rock. It just was so pivotal for the industry. Yeah, another thing was the use of a lot of uh, what sounds like power chords with the harmonies, a lot Mm. of parallel fourths and fifths, which is something that is incredibly faithful to the sound of guitar-driven rock music. But actually, if you look at it, isn't kind of the modus operandi of many 8-bit composers. That's true. What we find in a lot of 8-bit rock, there's a lot of third-based harmony. You just, you know, just... You know, just melody and harmony, a third apart moving in parallel. That's what I think of and sometimes is kind of like the classic Capcom Mega Man sound. And I think what that gives us that normal rock music doesn't is a little more innocent and happy. Yeah, polychromatic, colorful, sunshiny. But what I think Yuzo Koshiro touched on brilliantly with Ease is it gave it a little bit more grit. And part Mm -hmm. of it had to do with the sound of the FM synthesis, the addition of some channels. Uh, But there are a few things happening here musically that I think are kind of pioneering for the world of video game music. I will say that B section, the in the way that the roles are kind of recontextualized, where the bass is actually kind of the first voice that you yeah. hear and starts off with this little motive that we almost perceive as kind of a melody and then the actual B section melody is responding to it that kind of interplay I feel is uh, it displays a lot of confidence with the tools but it's something that reminds me of a lot of Sega Genesis music that would come later another thing that's very ahead of the curve is we talked a little bit about how the Super Nintendo was uh, at least for Uematsu was an era when you could first start thinking about how do you arrange this piece of music what instruments do you use and how do you like quote mix this track uh whereas in the nes era it's just like you're just trying to keep your head above water but you got to remember this is in that nes era and this is a system that you are able to or arrange it and pick your instruments right it's a japanese computer system that's more akin to what the arcade cabinets were like of the time yeah so now we're gonna move way ahead in the future to one of the most recent soundtracks that yuzo koshiro has composed it's etrian odyssey 5 uh i think the most recent in the series i don't think we featured any music from this fifth installment really cool soundtrack very blood pumping and rocking just giving exactly what the etrian odyssey fans are looking for and once again like almost every entry in this in this series he basically has two discs of the soundtrack he has the normal one which is mostly rock and like real instruments then he has an fm one which incorporates some of those instruments but also the classic pc88 sounds here so let's take a listen to a track called battle theme one fm version from etrian odyssey 5 
This is so great. It perfectly illustrates really how far Yuzo Koshiro has come as a composer, but at the same time, going back to his roots and doing really the same thing he's done from the beginning. Right. I think now he has much more experience and many more tools in his tool belt. This is Battle Theme 1 FM version from Etrian Odyssey 5. Yuzo Koshiro composed this when he was 48 years old. He's now 49, so this still came out so young. last year. Very young in He's the scheme still of things. a young man, considering how much he is a mover and shaker in he the industry. He totally is. And what I love about listening to this is, while, yes, the bass sounds, a lot of the synth sounds are very similar to what we just heard, it is kind of cool to hear that. There's so many more inventive, uh, exploratory kind of compositional devices that he honestly just didn't know about, probably, when he was a teenager. He just well, learned so much. it's also hard to implement, you right. know? I mean, he, he was also in, I imagine, his early early days as far as his technical abilities of working on the PC-88. Yeah, when I listen to a track like this, it, it's definitely very rocking and high energy, and it reminds me of some of the Ease music, but it's it's definitely more classy, and something about it is, is I guess, tasteful in a way that some of that early music is a little bit more just like in your face. Mm -hmm. There's a rawness about it, but I think that's mm -hmm. one of the things that makes it appealing. You know, I sort of see this in all of these FM versions of the Etrian Odyssey soundtracks, as almost Koshiro-san's way of proving to his fans that the music that he was writing for that series, even if it has more traditional rock instrumentation, the lifeblood of yeah. it, the life force of it, is completely simpatico with his early music on those Japanese computer systems. And I think as a fan of his... Koshiro fans are more lucky than anyone else because they get this clear through line right. that you don't get with someone like Koji Kondo or Uematsu. Right. But then again, you know, Yuzo Koshiro has done soundtracks for games with orchestras yeah, like and Shenmue, full rock like that. ensembles. I mean, even getting to work in Kid Icarus Uprising, yeah. we have a few notable names on today's episode that all worked on that wow, soundtrack. True, I see Will. that as kind of like this real testament. It's almost like the, the video game music equivalent of like a super group. Absolutely. Uh, just some of the biggest names in the history of game music. Three of the composers on today's episode featured right. in that game, and many that could have been, to right. be honest. Okay. Alright, now guys, we're going to move on to another composer that starts with a Y. It is Yoko Shimomura. <laughs> Taking bets on <laughs> Not anyone? our last Y composer. No, definitely not. Okay, so this is a very easy choice. For me, this was maybe the second composer that I thought of. You gotta do Yoko Shimomura, right? She was so pivotal in the, in the early era of video game music. She did work in the NES era, Game Boy stuff, but really she made a name for herself with the release of things like Street Fighter 2 uh, and, and also games like we're going to play. We're going to play a track from The King of Dragons, which is around that same era and has a very similar musical style to Street Fighter 2. Really one of the most effective composers in that era, writing great uh, catchy melodies, rocking stuff that reminds you of you know films that mm -hmm. you may have seen like Top Gun things like that but it just it holds up in a way that a lot of music from that era doesn't I think that's very true Carl something that I've always really admired about Yoko Shimomura is she kind of cut her teeth in completely opposite styles and types of franchises I mean so many people know her for Street Fighter 2 that really <laughs> yeah. poppy great rock sound but I'd say one of the biggest uh, types of horror compositional output and 
another thing that she's known for, say some of the great RPG music, the square is stuff, so yeah. counter to so that style. And she's known and a loved for both of them and continues mm-hmm. to kind of operate in both of those styles. And every once in a while, she will share more of the Street Fighter rocking style right. in these RPG games. And it's always a treat to hear that. All right, let's start things off with an example from The King of Dragons. This is the SNES version. Let's take a listen to Treasure in an Old Castle, composed by Yoko Shimomura. The reason why maybe this sounds so classic to us is this came out the exact same year as Street Fighter 2. What a pivotal year for Shimamura. This is 1991 here, originally for the arcade and then ported to some other systems. She's currently 49, and she composed music to this and Street Fighter 2 when she was about 23, 24 years old. It's so insane. Very young. Insane. I am rapidly approaching her age. <laughs> I hope that I will have well, something to what's going to be it. your Street Fighter 2? Or <laughs> your King of Dragons? Well, I doubt it will ever happen, uh, but <laughs> this is just so excellent. Something that I noticed that I guess if I could say there are any specific traits of Yoko Shimomura as a composer that set her apart from the kind of idiom that she's writing in, you know, because there's so much video game music that's this kind of pop, rock, syncopated, fun sound. What I notice is she has a lot more offbeat-driven melodies. Um, Sure. Very syncopated When that actually happens uh, is a little bit more groovy than it necessarily even needs to be for a lot of video game music like this. There's a thing that comes up when Will and myself talk a lot about uh, composers that we love. And one thing that comes up a lot is the idea of someone coming up with something so great when they're so young. And can they ever reach that same level when they're older? And in some ways, they're never going to be able to do the exact same thing again. Because mm-hmm. when you're young, you're just you're into different music and you have a sense of energy and, and sometimes just a sense of desperation right. that you won't have later on in life. And I do think uh, at the time this was written, this type of music almost sounded contemporary. Sure. Where now it would very distinctly feel video gamey. It would feel retro. It would sound like 80s, 90s, you know, pop. So mm-hmm. it, 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 I think it's harder to kind of do it as earnestly as she did when she was that young, when she was living with all that music being part of the zeitgeist. Sure. I mean, I just think it's uh, different. Uh, but I do think she's a composer who has continued to work at a very high level and a consistent output her entire career. And that's definitely evident in this next track. We're going to play uh, one of the most recent works that she has contributed to. This is a soul composition, Final Fantasy XV, XV. There's no other composers. It's so wild. When I think of modern Final Fantasy games, there's like a list of like eight composers. Mm-hmm. And this is all composed by Yoko Shimomura. It's just, I think one of her biggest skills and maybe why she is is making such a great living today as a video game composer is she's able to compose a daunting amount of music 
for a for a single project just mm-hmm. huge huge amounts of music uh so let's play a track from final fantasy 15 um i get confused because then there's like there's different offshoots i'm not sure if if you would call this xv x5 15 i'm gonna say 15 uh and we're gonna play a track called apocalypsis aquarius composed by yoko shimamura hear a lot of interesting things about this piece and i'll compare this to to the track we heard before it's a great (laughs) showcase of her diversity and and how she's so good at so many different kinds of music this is masterful i'm really happy that the technology has kind of caught up with her talent because now when you listen to uh, you know modern shimamura soundtracks they sound really good i mean there was an era when she was doing so much kingdom Hearts stuff and there was good music, but it was just kind of, it was so sequency. Right. And, and there was necess- not necessarily maybe as much heart to the way that it, that it sounded. When you listen to something like this, you know, Final Fantasy XV, it just sounds so top tier. Right. I think that's very true. And I mean, uh, this definitely sounds more reminiscent of something like Kingdom Hearts than it does of something like uh, Super Street Fighter Two. Oh, yeah. But what is so amazing about it, you mentioned her diversity, but there's a lot of things she needs to navigate in a game like this. First of all, she needs to have music that can exist within the fabric that uh, Uematsu-san established with the Final Fantasy series. Right. But what I notice with this installment, I feel like there is a lot of influence from Western film music and oh, even for sure. things like Game of Thrones. Like I, I, get a f- I get a sense that she's trying to make it feel like a contemporary game a contemporary action game you know and be able to compete with uh the musical palette of things like you know the elder scrolls series i think at the very least this is a very serviceable modern rpg soundtrack but it beyond that it has really great melodies it's very well composed but you're right and there's beautiful playing i think the very minimum that she needed to do for this project was to make it a serviceable modern soundtrack that felt modern and exciting and felt big budget and what's fun to me is it is a particular sound that i haven't really heard before in video game music Because it it actually feels like it is, like I said, borrowing a lot from contemporary Western film music, yet you still hear the Japanese influence. It's kind of this new hybrid. It feels a little bit... Uh, more evolved from like the earlier Kingdom Hearts games and that's neither you know here nor there I love all of her music but it's just interesting to note how things have maybe changed or shifted a little 
Absolutely. Maybe the most stark contrast today. All right, we're going to move to one of the two Western composers we are able to feature today. Uh, Wanted to have more, but this is just what made the cut. The first Western composer that we have to talk about is, of course, you guessed it, David Wise, right? (laughs) (laughs) He's definitely a living legend. I think anyone who's at this this past MAGFest would attest to that if you saw how long of a line there was for his panel. He's a living legend. I think all the other talented composers that were at MAGFest would have agreed. I mean, I think people like Austin Wintry even said that. You know, this man is a legend. He definitely is. Safe to say this is the only composer on our list today that we've shared a drink with. That's true. uh, (laughs) That's true. Um, We have spoken to a few of these individuals. Yoko Shimomura is, uh, we're going to try to get a drink with her next week no i'm just kidding <laughs> um so yeah uh he got a start at rare uh in the he got a start in the nes days at rare uh making a lot of not very great games and some okay ones and then eventually it was uh the launch of this game donkey kong country for the super nes that really kind of catapulted him i think some could argue battle toads for the nes sure. that yeah, was yeah. kind of uh, uh, a little bit of that was kind of like a classic. Sure, of yeah, no, its era. there were there were classics mixed in there, but there definitely were a lot of games that people don't really talk about today. Yeah, a lot of the LJN produced titles <laughs> yeah. that uh, yeah, I mean, developed. if anyone's not familiar, if you look on David Wise's Wikipedia page, it's insane how many games he composed before Donkey Kong Country. Mm-hmm. That's usually where most people start talking about him. But he did so ma- the vast majority of the games in his whole career was before that, and some absolute classic melodies of the Mm -hmm. 8-bit era. So we're going to play a track from Donkey Kong Country. Really, I think, one of the melodies that put him on the map in homes around the world. This is Aquatic Ambiance from Donkey Kong Country, composed by David Wise. You guys are listening to one of the most iconic water themes in video games. This is Aquatic Ambiance 
from Donkey Kong Country for the SNES, composed by David Wise. And just thinking a little bit about his, you know, discography and what he had done before this, it still blows me away that this is the next entry. Like, if you go from, you know, the stuff he did with LJN, the NES, moving into maybe Battletoads, then you go to this, it's just crazy how this is such a turning point for his career. I think he had the opportunity and the necessity to make serious music. And when you listen to this now, it doesn't sound crappy or retro or old school or cute. It just sounds beautiful. Yeah, it's some of the most confident, daring implementation for this console. Yeah. And he did some incredibly brilliant uh, technical things in wizardry to help make this come to life. But he Mm -hmm. found a way of utilizing instruments that when compressed to the way that Super Nintendo samples were, they didn't lose their character in the same way that a lot of, uh, you know, acoustic sounding instruments did. He used a lot of synths and he used things in a very atmospheric and vibey way. The reason why we decided to play this track as opposed to something like DK Island Swing is because even though that bluesy, tuneful uh, side of his writing is a huge part of his corpus, this sound is what I think many of us consider the definitive David Wise sound. Something sure. very textural and atmospheric that has quite a long form and is built of all of these layers. And it's it's just, again, really staggering to think this was done with the number of channels that existed on the Super Nintendo, which I believe was eight. And I think this is mm-hmm. a track that doesn't even utilize all eight of those oh, channels. Oh, no, yeah. Most Super Nintendo games don't because they have to save some for sound effects mm-hmm. typically. But so. yeah, this is just incredible. The, the the melody is fantastic. All of the divisible elements are amazing, and it's it's really one of the most inspiring things. I mean, I'm sure some of you were just remarking when listening to it again how long it takes <laughs> until that principal it's melody very long. when it actually comes in. Again, there's just such a confidence with him really trying to establish a mood, and for how serious this music is, I think it it's really inspiring that it was done for such a cartoonish game that I think a lot of composers would have almost looked down upon and maybe not taken as seriously as Dave did. It's one of the things that inspires me most because there's something so unpretentious about it. And also just approached in a way that is so different from what anyone else was doing. The fact that the melody takes like, what, a minute 30 to to come in? Like nobody else was doing that in 1994. Yet it is a a piece that is remembered and known for its melody. True. Okay, well, I had to do this. It's so fitting. It's so perfect. We're now going to move on to the most recent project that David Wise composed for. Came out in 2017. It's not ukulele. It's Snake Pass. And the reason why I wanted to play this track is because this is another water theme. And it's so awesome to hear how far Dave has come. But at the same time, it's the same. It's the same David Wise. Yeah, I mean, genius can only reach such a high <laughs> high barrier. It's, so, it's more fitting to see the difference in the technology that he uses to just express his yeah, musical voice. For sure. Let's take a listen to Sog G's Realm, Water World from Snake Pass. Thank you. 
this is so beautiful. It's just very relaxing. It has a nice kind of quasi-reggae feel to the upbeats on the, the mandolin, but it, it's very atmospheric, and there's a lot of really uh, pretty arpeggios and ostinatos. It's kind of like electronic meets acoustic meets reggae. It's, it's just great. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it feels like some of his different types of genres that he feels comfortable writing in all meeting together. You have For the sure. almost synth-based atmospheric, layered, ostinato driven music. Evolving that reminds music, me of yeah. like uh, aquatic ambiance. But you also get you blues. Also, yeah, have the kind of mm-hmm. jungly flute blues sound, which reminds me of a lot of the Donkey Kong Country series, particularly even what he did in the recent Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. Yeah, it's hard because it could just be that he has such an iconic compositional style, but to me, this sounds so Donkey Kong Country. I think it's part hard of it to is get away the aesthetic that. of Snake Pass, I think, is in a similar style. I mean, it is supposed to be this jungle animal thing, and it, it is a little bit retro, I think, in terms of its aesthetic. All right. Well, now we're going to move on to a little known composer by the name of Koji Kondo. And just kidding. Uh, definitely the biggest, I would argue, the biggest name today that we're he's talking my about. favorite composer in the history of time and he's my favorite composer that's alive today and that's i think some pit would, against everybody some v- vgm fans would maybe argue that maybe uimatsu is is a bigger figure it's that's that's definitely a discussion that comes up a lot uh koji kondo i just don't think it gets more ubiquitous than the super mario brothers theme i mean absolutely. it was literally played on the tonight show so we could have started with something from the 8-bit era we decided to instead play something a little bit later because we wanted to show uh a similar genre and maybe how far the industry has come in order to now convey this genre in a, in a way that's so authentic. And we're going to go first go back to when it wasn't as authentic, maybe, but it was still wonderful. We'll start things off with a track from Super Mario World, which was the launch title for the Super Nintendo. We're going to play the staff role, which is a very fun, nostalgic, swanky kind of jazz. I think this big is my style. favorite piece of music from this game. It's one of my favorite yeah. Koji Kondo compositions. The reason why we chose this is because the thing we're juxtaposing it with is meant to embody kind of a big band yeah. idiom. And of all the music from the older Super Mario Brothers games, mm-hmm. I think this is the track that is most clearly trying to evoke that style in terms of the instruments themselves, the kind of harmonies and chords that are mm-hmm. used, particularly even in the ending and the introduction. Uh, but also just rhythmically, uh, the style of this track, I, I think you'll notice some similarities. Let's take a listen to the staff roll from Super Mario World. Thank you. 
you know, listening to this again, we've listened to this so many times and we're just so in love with it. But every time I listen to it, there's almost like something new to, to discover and love mm-hmm. about it. This time around, what I was particularly impressed with, and because I'm trying to listen to something new, you know, is I'm listening to those call and response, like harmony lines that you hear more right. on the right side. And they're just perfect. Yeah. It's just every single note is so, it's like tucked in exactly yeah. where it needs to be I mean, so this comfortable. Is, this is my whole point with Koji Kondo. That's why I say he's my favorite composer because it's not just that he writes good melodies. There are a lot of video game music composers that write great melodies, but with Koji Kondo, I really get the sense that every single note is perfect. It's he, Koji Kondo, he's like Chopin where every right. single line has been refined and is precise and specific to that moment. There's such an elegance to his writing. And a simplicity to yeah, his writing. Exactly. You don't in a hear really a lot of way. You don't hear a lot of zany notes. You don't hear a lot right. of you don't hear like right. that modern Nintendo sound that we get mm-hmm. in things like Mario Kart. Yeah, there's also I brought this word up earlier, but earnest. There's something so earnest and genuine about his expression. You don't feel like he's like talking down to you, like, oh, there are so many composers like that would take this as oh Mario's a child's game. I need to make child music. Right. But I get the sense he's He's, you know, exerting the effort to write a sincere melody. This is not something that I imagine came easily. And having read and sifted through as many interviews with this man as I can find, I realize that, no, he really works incredibly hard and is very brutal with himself to craft uh, some of these incredible melodies. And I think that extends to all aspects of composition, arrangement, the whole thing. There's a couple little theory things I want to point out in this track because I will call back to them with our next example. Uh, the biggest thing I want to mention is just the intro of this piece. The you kind of hear that as a melody, but if you're actually to look at it, uh, that top melody note and that bass note are over an octave apart. And what we have is a D minor nine chord. Sure. Um, so that top note of the melody is uh, an E, and then the lowest note is a D, and they're an octave apart. So it's this really rich extended harmony that you don't hear anywhere else in the game. And then it moves to this uh, G augmented seven chord, which is basically a five chord with a raised fifth scale degree. It has this old school show tuny jazz sound. Uh, both of these types of chord constructions are going to crop up in our next example. And the next example is this week's track of the week. Now, this is the only track today that is unconfirmed at the time of recording. Uh, you know, to, to the best of our abilities as composers and as, as students of music, uh, we feel very strongly that this is most likely composed by Koji Kondo. We'll wait until October to, to probably get maybe verification on that, but this is New Donk City from the upcoming Super Mario Odyssey for the Nintendo Switch. It makes a lot of sense that uh, this would be Koji Kondo. He wrote one melody for Super Mario 3D World used in two different settings. One of the settings was a big band sound that sounds very much like and this. For every single Super Mario Brothers game, the hub world has always been written by Koji Kondo. You True. think of Rosalina's Castle, you know, Mario 64, Delfino Plaza, Starship Mario. That's we're, kind of we're in gonna, keeping. We're going to bet some money now. And that. there are so many specific <laughs> details in the melody and the chords and things that I will point out that absolutely unequivocally i have no doubt in my mind that this is Koji folks Kondo. we are going to bet a whopping 
$5 that this is Koji Kondo. All right, let's take a listen to New Donk City. You guys are listening to New Donk City from the upcoming Switch game Super Mario Odyssey, which, fun fact, I'm excited to play. I'm so excited. <laughs> this is composed, in our opinion, by Koji Kondo. This well, week's and, track and week. not just our opinion. I, I've seen others online expressing the same thing. There's even some YouTube videos that just definitively credit to Koji Kondo. Right. Um, the hard thing is, you know, I don't speak Japanese, and there aren't too many interviews, uh, contemporary interviews, that talk about the music at all. Uh, but I, there are so many things to me that tell me it's Koji Kondo. First of all, the melody. It's such mm-hmm. a crafted, economical melody. Uh, there's a very specific sequence of notes, and so many of Koji Koji's melodies, and I would argue even his most recent melodies, uh, say in Super Mario 3D World and in the Galaxy series, it seems like more than ever he's becoming increasingly obsessed with finding a very small sequence of notes to create these little hooky riffs. And I know what you this mean. This melody is no exception. Yada ba ba ba. There are these very select chord tones that he keeps jumping back to. He's almost locking himself in, in the similar style to how Ocarina of Time had that constraint of, you know, all these melodies constructed around the same five notes. It just, at the end of the day, it sounds so similar to his theme for 3D World, that right. even that in and of itself, that and the Yoshi Star Galaxy, there yeah. are, particularly the the moment that really sold me was the ba da ba ba ba. You know those rhythms, those large intervallic leaps, and then it's all pretty much over to me when you get to that chord sequence is so Super Mario Brothers, but it it's this Koji Kondo level of simplicity. One of my favorite things about it also is the intro the yeah da, 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 it's da, such da, a great da, da, intro da, 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 and also da, da, i mean da. we we could spend a lot more time we will have an odyssey episode at some point and we can talk more about it but just the amazing recording production and performance on this it's just yeah. to die for it, it it's it is hearkening back to the sound of super mario 64 with some of that yep. uh the the chord progression is great it's kind of going back between the tonic and the flat seventh a little bit sure uh one 
theory moment that I want to touch on is the very end of the form. The bam, 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 bam. It's mm-hmm. basically moving in contrary the motion. The melody is going upward and the bass is going downward, and it's spelling out these increasingly extended harmonies. We start with a major seven chord. It's F major seven over C, and then we move to E flat major nine over B flat, and then we move to like D flat major eleven, and it just keeps getting increasingly extended and and some of those touches really make me think that it's koji kondo because i'm even reminded of stuff like link to the past or even that mario world example well now we're going to move on to the last y composer of the day this is yasunori mitsuda and we we had some other y composers on the list but this is a name that you just have to talk about as a living legend definitely got started a little bit later than most of the people on this list his first big game was chrono trigger which came out for the super nintendo so yeah a little bit later but the fact that he's still composing for games to this day i think definitely warrants him a spot on this list let's take a listen to a classic this is corridors of time from chrono trigger my favorite melodies i will say from the super nintendo era it's just so beautiful i I think i've come to the conclusion that this is my favorite track from chrono trigger i think i might like this more than secret of the forest i just love the the vibe that's established it's kind of like like that gamelan world music sound Mm -hmm. that you've heard before but it's so japanese and like jazz fusiony just a great melody great sense of atmosphere Mm -hmm. this is just classic chrono trigger the ostinato is very carefully constructed to imply these sort of open chord tones that give you a lot of freedom to move in different directions sure but yeah it there is this underlying jazziness melodies that revolve around the ninth that revolve around the seventh and it's fun fact um Nobuo Uematsu actually did work a little bit on Chrono Trigger as well. I believe there's a, a couple of compositions that were done by him. And I know that Yasunori Mitsuda was very stressed. He was very young and very stressed and scared working on this project. He had to do it pretty quickly. Uh, it's one of the greatest video game soundtracks. It's arguably in the top two or three on the Super Nintendo. I mean, the implementation is fantastic, the quality of the themes, the kind of instrumentation and orchestration that he's able to convey. I think this puts, uh, you know, all of the Super Famicom Final Fantasy soundtracks to shame, and that's saying something because I really love those soundtracks. But Chrono Trigger is in like a tier all of its own. There, and I mean, knowing that he was kind of frantically working on it, it almost makes sense because everything is so polished and done with such love and care. For sure. So we did forget to mention, but Koji Kondo is currently 55 years old, and Yasunori Mitsuda is currently 45 years old. So it makes sense; he's about 10 years younger. Koji Kondo. Let's now play a very recent example 
of Yasunori Mitsuda. We're so fortunate that he's still composing in this industry. A recent game he worked on was called Stella Glow. Let's take a listen to South Valley, composed by Yasunori Mitsuda. This is so catchy and funky and just swashbuckling and wonderful. You guys are listening to South Valley from the 3DS game Stella Glow, composed by Yasunori Mitsuda. This came out very recently. It's a tactical RPG for the 3DS. How wonderful is this? Beautiful playing, uh, incredible composition. When I think of Yasunori Mitsuda, I think of a composer who is taking the elegance of classical music and Japanese folk music and even uh, Japanese film music composers like Joe Hisaishi and integrating this kind of rock groove-based energy. That's for uh, sure. That in also really invoking some serious jazz moves, some beautiful borrowed chords and voicings uh, in an era where it wasn't as common. Chrono Trigger is one of the first soundtracks, I think, to kind of kick things up to the next level. I think you're so right, Will, and I think we still hear that today with a track like this. And I think the easiest thing that it does if you're not like a, a, a technical musician, it just makes music that's surprising. You're not mm-hmm. Always expecting where it's going to go. When we listen to something like Secret, like like, satisfying too. Yeah, like Secret of the Forest is a great example. Where very satisfying, very fulfilling musically, but so surprising. The first time, do you remember? Yeah, the first time you heard that. I feel like the first time I heard it, I was just floored by it. What I think is interesting now, and even though you mentioned that he's a relatively young man, just being forty-five. the industry has so changed that now you almost see him as like a breath of fresh air from an older generation. His music feels a little bit more like conservative and restrained and tuneful and melodic in the sure. context of so much video game music nowadays. But you have to remember uh, what he kind of gave to game he music was, and game music culture. He was 21 when he composed for Chrono, Insane. Chrono Trigger. So ridiculous. All right. Let's move on to another amazing composer. This is the second composer, I believe, today, uh, only the second, that we have had the privilege of meeting and having an interview with. This is Manami Matsumai, and she is definitely a living legend. Let's play a track from UN Squadron, shall we? Could have played something from Mega Man, could have played so many great examples. We're going to play this. Um, this was really the era that she got her her start on. It was the arcade era. She did so many great games for the arcade. She didn't do a lot of NES, so this feels very fitting um, to, to kind of sum up her early years. This is Thundercloud Round 2 for the arcade version of UN Squadron, composed by Manami Matsumai. Thank you. 
You guys are listening to Thundercloud Round 2 from UN Squadron, composed by, at this time, a 25-year-old Manami Matsumai. Gosh, her music is so infectious. <laughs> One of my favorite things, and we were actually fortunate enough, uh, I was able to ask this question to her. So much of her music in the B sections, there's a very specific kind of modulating, jazzy, 2-5-1 thing that happens. Sure. And so I remember, yeah, in, in the moment... Um, I figured it would almost be easier for me to like sing some examples and it rather was than easier. explain it. Yeah, and we didn't even Jazz need a translator. Changes, yeah. yeah, for the for the question, I just kind of sang examples from her melodies that use a similar progression, and she, she talked loves about it. It was jazz chord changes. Yeah, one of her favorite jazz musicians is Pat Metheny, mm-hmm. and she loves the way that his chord progressions are so smooth that you almost you don't realize that you're you're changing, you're modulating. Right, it doesn't feel like a modulation. It just feels like there are so many <laughs> more chords that you disposal but that b section in this piece is just so delightful it's the best it is the best all right now we're going to move to an amazing piece of music uh this is one that i have come around to classic i've come around to so much so she composed two tracks for shovel knight and this one i've always liked but the other one i when i first heard it, i wasn't a fan of and i've definitely come around to that one but this one i i've just come around to the fact that this is just an amazing composition took me a long time to kind of get to that point but it is a thousand leagues below also known as iron whale and like i said she contributed only two tracks and she sent uh those tracks into jake kaufman who did the kind of you know the shovel knight vrc6 implementation and i think one of the reasons why this was maybe challenging for you Carl. And what's so cool is the Jay Kaufman music sounds a little bit more like what you would expect from a classic NES game. And yep. what I love about uh, Matsumae-san's music in Shovel Knight is that it's a bit more experimental. Both of these pieces kind of utilize the whole tone scale. And dissonance. And so, yeah, there's almost like a little bit of an atonal implication to some of these harmonies. But Let's it's take so a listen cool. to Iron Whale from Shovel Knight. What a great composition. This is A Thousand Leagues Below, also known as Iron Whale, from Shovel Knight, implemented by Jake Kaufman, composed by Minami Matsumai. Kind of fun to to first play an arcade FM track and then to play a recent track that almost goes backwards Mm -hmm. in sound. But this is a modern track. Yeah, what seems like the last few years of Minami Matsumai's uh, career are very reflective in looking back. Nostalgic. Soundtracks that are meant to evoke an older era or are meant to revitalize, in the case of Mighty Number no. 9, <laughs> it's you know, differing opinions of how well that worked, but <laughs> kind of a good. dead series. 
Um, yeah, and I think what's kind of interesting about that, it shows almost like a, a, an era that we're in with video games in general, that there are a lot of retro reimaginings in, in games that are kind of paying tribute to the classic heyday of early games. And what's yeah. amazing is to have composers and artists that were on the front lines in those days mm-hmm. kind of reflect on their early work and actually get to have a hand in creating some games like that and, you know, create music as well. And again, it's I think an exciting time. even in her, in her free time, you know, she contributed recently to, to projects like, you know, that one shot, one kill, that which was is so like an good. 8-bit new 8-bit song so yeah it's just it's just great that she's still active in the industry this is such a great example of a living legend someone that is using their experience uh to kind of pull at our nostalgic heartstrings at times but also not not shy not afraid to go off into new directions all right let's now move on to the the last western composer we're going to talk about today it just didn't quite feel right to have an episode called living legends without including peter mcconnell yes obviously we're we're also a big fan of his you know co-workers at lucas arts michael land clint bajakian peter mcconnell really feels like he's kind of stayed in the spotlight maybe more than they have over the years well and he's developed an individual voice that i think mm-hmm. maybe the others haven't what's so amazing to me about looking at peter mcconnell's career is that he's continued to just kind of rise up and up and up sure. and up and uh he, he's really such a prolific guy especially in his recent years where he's been managing you know writing for new projects as well the as helping stuff. with yeah some of the double fine remasters of the lucas arts well let's play a track that is a very good showcase of his unique jazzy style. This is Doug the Mole Man, which he composed from Sam and Max Hit the Road. Let's take a listen. Doug the Mole Man from the PC game Sam and Max Hit the Road, which is a classic LucasArts adventure game. We all grew up playing this game and adoring the music. This particular track is composed by Peter McConnell, and why I was excited to play it is because it perfectly embodies his unique kind of quirky, goofy style of jazz writing, and it's something that is even evident to this day. You know, he's currently scoring Psychonauts 2. And the, the Psychonauts 1 music, and a lot of the music he is still writing to this day, the Sly Cooper stuff, has this swanky kind of comedic small mm-hmm. ensemble style. It's just so great. He also really has a commitment to melody. All of his games have themes, have music that's incredibly memorable. And this is maybe one of my favorite melodies of his. It feels like a classic game music melody. The only thing about it that maybe feels separate from uh, some of, you know, maybe the Japanese counterparts are the richness of the harmony all of those minor six chords and minor seven chords really kind of give it a slightly more authentic old school american jazz sound but the melody is just god is that fantastic it's amazing so instead of playing another example of this kind of small ensemble jazz sound we wanted to show uh maybe 
some some different styles that he's been up to lately. One of the best soundtracks he's done in years, very critically acclaimed. This is Broken Age. Let's take a listen to a beautiful piece of music, Vela Wakes, composed by Peter McConnell. You guys just listened to Vela Wakes from Broken Age, which is so incredibly beautiful, composed by Peter McConnell. Um, I love Broken Age because almost out of anything that Peter's done, it really showcases his diverse abilities and his diverse talents as a composer and, and an arranger. It's just it's just so impressive. He utilizes leitmotif, which is a concept that's usually more associated with film music. And what I think is great about that, and the adventure games have have done that really to some extent, mm-hmm. even in the early days, because the way that they're structured, since they're more narrative driven, the scores tend to be more elaborate and can almost sound like a film score. There's but more freedom given to them. What I so loved about Broken Age and, and the tone of the whole game, I mean, it, it was definitely trying to go back in some sense and recapture the magic of those old adventure games, but it didn't feel content to just slap on an old coat of paint and Mm. just embrace that old genre with all of its flaws. They kind of wanted to modernize it and maybe fix some of the things that were frustrating or or difficult. I just so respect Broken Age and what they did with it, and I think it's incredibly underrated. And I also think Peter's score is underrated to that same regard. It doesn't sound like any LucasArts adventure game, but that's the thing. It, It wasn't about recapturing a style. It's about getting these artists to work in a medium that they well, haven't I think for decades. As far as Peter goes, it was about capturing the emotion that this particular story and these exactly. characters warranted. I think Broken Age doesn't really sound like any other game soundtrack. It's so yeah. beautiful. It's there so are times, singular. There are times when it's very restrained and minimalistic, and then there mm-hmm. are times when he indulges in something more emotional. Those moments might be few and far between, and the soundtrack itself isn't the longest soundtrack in the world. But yeah, what he was able to get out of this, uh, oh, it's and just I amazing. Love the sound of the recordings uh there there's the melbourne symphony yeah and there's an interesting choice between uh when when reverb is used Mm. and how much of it is used and what i really like about a track like this it has this very intimate dry sound to it which is very different from some of the music you hear when you know you're floating out in space and it just sounds vast and endless gosh what a talent can't wait for psychonauts 2 and to see all the future work that peter does all right before we get to our play out we have uh two more tracks to play one more composer to talk about here this is 
by any account, a living legend. It is Koichi Sujiyama. Yes. And he got his start working, uh, as far as the video game industry goes, for the Dragon Quest series. But he had been composing years before that. You could argue he was a living legend when he got his start in video (laughs) games. He definitely was. Let's start off with a track of his from Dragon Quest II. This is the MSX version. I think also came out for the NES and some other systems. Let's take a listen to Busy City Streets. perfectly demonstrates uh, <laughs> Sujiyama's ability to, to bring in some film music level of authenticity to this early era of video game music. And he was a huge figure for proving that video games don't have to just sound silly and like these bleeps and bloops. We can take it seriously. And I think composers like him were, were you know, one of the reasons why, you know, this genre, video game music, evolved as far as it did. He, when he was working on this, he was already, like, in his mid-50s because he's 86 right now. He's born in 1931. So he was already a very esteemed and, you know, kind of talented, seasoned composer at the start. What I, I think it's really interesting what you say about him bringing some classical or film music sophistication because to me, when I listen to this music... It just sounds like great 8-bit music. Interesting. Like, it, it reminds me a lot of like what Koji Kondo and the Nintendo composers were doing. Mm-hmm. To me, what it actually proves is that musically, there isn't all that much of a difference between the sophistication of a great film theme and a great video game theme. It's more about the presentation. And I think when a lot of people look down at video game music for being primitive or simplistic, they're really only giving it a surface level glance. Well, I think one thing you could say that maybe differentiates Sujiyama from maybe other video game composers is that he has such a clear sense of craft and he's not doing any implementation. He's not getting into the thick of it. He's composing on the piano, sending someone else sheet music that mm-hmm. they're translating onto the system. And because of that, you're having very clear part writing, very clear melodies. Sure. And I I completely agree with that. I think he absolutely is a living legend and all of these parts are brilliantly written. But I think there are some other amazing video game music composers like Koji Kondo Mm -hmm. who also have impeccably crafted parts. I think they come from kind of a similar tradition and i know that uh sujiyama was was kind of a pivotal role model for composers such as koji kondo right. so it makes sense yeah i mean he was a known figure and he also was responsible for at least in japan giving some more cultural cachet to video game music he organized yeah. some of the first ever game music concerts very true and did some recordings of uh he, he made yeah, an arrangement much, of the super mario brothers theme yeah and also pretty much every dragon quest game that was released had like an orchestral cd right that came out with it so yeah just so important let's let's now move on to that this is now dragon quest x dragon quest 10 and it's really cool to see how far maybe the series has come uh how far the industry has come here let's take a listen to weddy from dragon quest 10 composed again by koichi sujiyama performed by the tokyo metropolitan orchestra 
Guys, thank you so much for joining us for our Season 12 premiere episode, spotlighting on some living legends in the video game industry. I can speak for myself and probably will that we are so grateful that all of these fine composers are still with us, still working, still composing great melodies. It's just such mm. a treat to be, uh, you know, as a fan of video game music. What, what a fun episode this was. Yeah, I think I feel very heartened by the fact that Honestly, for so many of these examples, my favorite piece when we did the before and after was the before, you know, I mean, so many times people talk about, oh, the limitations in the early days, and now we have so much more freedom and technology. But I say even in the case of Sujiyama, I mean, game music, it's not like it had to grow into being artistic. It was artistic from the start. I don't think it necessarily garnered the appreciation that it does now, but... Yeah, I see what you're saying. It was artistic from the start, but it required imagination <laughs> from right. the listener, from the game but player. But no, I think that is a component to something being artistic. Hmm. I think art by its very nature should inspire imagination. And so I really don't think that's ever truly a limitation when you look at it in that regard. That's wonderful. Well, I really like that point. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are going to play you out with the recent example from Motowai Sakuraba, who we played in with from that Mega Drive game. This is now a game that came out, I think, last year. This is Star Ocean 5, Integrity and Faithfulness. We're going to play a track called Face Off, which is just classic rocking proggy Sakuraba, similar to <laughs> his amazing Dark Pit theme uh, from Kid Icarus Uprising. Yeah, no kidding. Well, long live all of these composers and here, here. the other innumerable examples of living legends that we didn't get to feature on today's Just episode. a couple of honorable mentions. We have Naoshi Mizuda, who I would have loved to include. Right. We have Chris Hulsbeck, who right. definitely is another living legend. We have Jun Senaway. So many other people we, we thought about spotlighting today. So we'll, we'll get to that later. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. We're excited about this season. We have a lot of good ideas cooked up for you guys. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. You can subscribe to us on YouTube and on iTunes. And thank you for everyone for leaving iTunes reviews. And thank you so much for our to our lovely patrons you guys are responsible for keeping this show alive with all the costs that it takes to 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 keep this operation going and we have some patreon submitted episodes in the weeks to come coming soon you can look forward to that all right guys i think that just about does it definitely check out the other podcast in the marcado brothers network we have underscore which talks about film music and we have heroes 3 which talks about kung fu movies Really excited to have, you know, this network that's expanding. Excited to see what happens next. There's going to be two episodes of Underscore this week. And for the one that's coming out on Thursday, Carl, you are actually a featured guest on that. So you guys Fun can times. look forward to all three of the Marcado brothers chatting and gabbing away. All right, guys. Enjoy the Sakuraba track. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everyone. Peace out. <laughs>